0: except by me to Martha he said I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me though he were dead yet shall he live and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this before we open God's word this morning let's ask his guidance upon our reading and studying of his word Our Father, it's a great privilege that we have to sit here, comfortable pews, air conditioning, to have in our hands translations of your word that are fairly accurate, to come to understand what you have had recorded and have preserved for us in our own hands is just a remarkable privilege that the vast majority of Christians through the ages have never enjoyed and yet too often we take that for granted Father we're thankful for your word and for all that is revealed in it that it may teach us and correct us and rebuke us at times but it lays out for us the path of righteousness, spiritual growth so that we can be equipped for every good work, so that we can walk with you. It is interesting that as we think through that verse in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, that the focal point is to be equipped for every good work And that connects to our understanding of the gospel in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which we so often quote, that in verse 10 we are saved for the purpose of doing good works that have been foreordained in Christ. And, Father, it is why we put such a focus upon your word. Help us to understand the significance of it and its application for our thinking and our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Ephesians chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 19. We are beginning a study of one of the greatest New Testament epistles, the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. This book is thought by many to have the most elevated, mature teaching from the Apostle Paul on the Christian life, on the church as the universal body of Christ, and who we are in Christ. The Ephesian believers had a problem that's not too different from our problem, and that is that They did not fully comprehend all that God had provided for them in Christ. These were their possessions. This is termed by Paul in the first chapter, our riches in Christ. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians lays out what these riches are, our position in Christ, a term that is often not understood, seems technical, and seems uh, highly theological, but is important to understand that it basically means that we have been transferred into the royal family of God, and with that new position in the royal family of God, we have various blessings. Every spiritual blessing, Paul will say in the first chapter, Now, the second half of the epistle talks about our walk. So the first half talks about our wealth in Christ. The second half talks about our walk in Christ. And what we see, what we learn from what Paul writes to the Ephesians is that they were a people not unlike us, very close, a lot of similarities between uh, Ephesus in the ancient world and Where we are as Americans living in a neo pagan culture of Western civilization, uh, far more advanced in its paganism in Europe than it is in the United States, but we're not far behind. We as Christians face many of the same challenges that the Ephesians faced in living in the midst of a, a pagan culture and communicating the gospel and the truth of the Scriptures to a culture that is at best neutral and at worst extremely hostile to the gospel and to Christianity. We as Christians are guilty of many of the same failings that those Christians were guilty of. And so it is important for us to delve into this book and in order to do so, we need to go back and gain a little background in our understanding of of uh, Paul's impact on and ministry in Ephesus. So we're going to turn, and actually, we will begin by looking at Acts chapter eighteen, and we will begin in uh, in verse nineteen. Now this. Is at the beginning, or rather, at the end of Paul's second missionary journey. He had three basic three missionary journeys, as they're usually described, and then there's a fourth journey that's not called a missionary journey, but it is Paul's trip in chains, as it were, from uh, Caesarea by the sea in in uh, Israel, taken as a prisoner to Rome. And so what we learn here, and you ought to remember this, this is very easy, when Paul went on his first missionary journey, at the conclusion he wrote his first epistle. So the first journey, he wrote one epistle to the Galatians. On his second missionary journey, when he took the gospel uh, across into Europe, and he went from uh, the north western part of turkey crossed over to neapolis in macedonia took the gospel to europe that is his second journey came down from macedonia to achaia and now he's on his way back and he writes two epistles from corinth before he came to ephesus first and second thessalonians he's going to leave Ephesus he's not going to stay long probably not more than a week maybe not even two it's very short because he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem before the feast of tabernacles to celebrate that there and then he will go back to his home church in Antioch and then he will leave within six months he's back in Ephesus for a three-year stay and then he will leave and he will retrace his steps to the church he's, he founded on his second missionary journey he will write three epistles on that third journey. So first journey, one epistle, second journey, two epistles, third journey, three epistles. He writes Romans and first and second Corinthians. And then after he is taken to Rome in, in, as a prisoner, he will write four prison epistles, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon following his release from his first first imprisonment he will write titus and first timothy and then during his last imprisonment he will write second timothy the last epistle that he writes so that gives you a summary of the apostle paul in acts 19:20 20 to 21 we read a the brief account of his first visit to ephesus he came to ephesus and left them there and that is his traveling companions, and he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. This is a word that's used a couple of times. It was used uh, also earlier in Acts 17. This is what he typically would do when he went into the synagogue. Now, a synagogue is not quite like an evangelical church. There are some similarities, but a synagogue was built to be a house of study and a house of study of, of, of the Word of God. And in a typical synagogue service, you would have a certain liturgy that you would go through. There would be the reading of the parashah, the the scripture for the day, and an exposition of that, a teaching based on that parashah. And then at the end, they would usually open it to perhaps any visitors that might be there, especially if they were there from Jerusalem. What that meant was that they were, um, they had gone to the schools in Jerusalem. They were trained as a, as a rabbi and they might bring some news from Jerusalem and, uh, maybe make some comments about scripture. This is usually when the apostle Paul would be, would stand up and would, uh, give a presentation of the gospel and talk about Jesus who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, uh, as the Messiah. And there would be also a dialogue at that time. That's what uh, it means to reason. It is a rational dialogue. There would be some question and answer, and Paul would work through the scriptures and present the gospel. So this is what he did when they asked him to stay longer, which indicates that there is a measure of positive volition in that congregation. Uh, in that synagogue. They asked him to stay longer with them. He did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, and I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now, let's have a little background to understand this significant city. It's a major city for a study of the New Testament. Paul visited it once at the end of his second missionary journey, and then He spent uh, approximately three years during the beginning of his third missionary journey. He established a training school there uh, from which missionaries or pastors went out to all of the surrounding towns and villages uh, teaching the gospel, and there were uh, many hundreds, if not thousands, who, who were saved. You had the founding of churches in Laodicea, in Hierapolis, in Colossae, and, and many others. Those are the ones that we know of because they are, uh, mentioned in Scripture. This is a picture here of Ephesus in Paul's day. It was, uh, rather large. Today you can go to Ephesus. So I've been there twice. And it is the largest, uh, a- excavation of an ancient city in the world. There's uh, th- there's Jerash in Jordan, which is second to the excavation at, at Ephesus. It just boggles the mind how large it is. The population of Ephesus at the time in the first century is estimated to be between uh, w- um, about 250,000 to 500,000. I've read Every number in between in doing research, that's a large city, a lot of people, and there's a lot going on there. It was uh, uh, strategically located on the mouth of the Caister River on the uh, on the Aegean. Now here's the harbor that came in, and this shows you how close the water was. To Ephesus, it's a major port for the ancient world. Uh, w- um, major highways that came in from the interior of what we now know as Turkey, that brought goods all the way from Asia, would come and bring them to bring those goods to the port uh, at Ephesus. But that port silted in in the ancient world. This is a depiction of what it. Might have looked like in the ancient world, and this is what it looks like today. This uh, this is the main cardio here. This this uh, line here, but see see this area here that is that just low lying plains between these two hills. That's where the harbor was. It's been completely silted in, so now it's about Ephesus is about six miles from the uh, from the Aegean. Other areas to note that we'll talk about, there, this is a major uh, theater. It is enormous. And this is the scene of the uh, riot that takes place in the latter part of Acts chapter 19. And then a little bit out of town over here is the location of the Temple of Artemis, which I'll talk about in just, just a minute. In terms of the history of the city, It's divided into three or four eras. It was founded in uh, approximately 1044 B.C. There's not much to note in the first 500 years, but around 555 B.C., it was uh, captured by Creasus, the king of Lydia, and is part of his domain for some time until About sixty or seventy years later, when uh, uh, Cyrus the Persian comes in and captures the city in five in five forty six, after that it is uh, part of uh, becomes part of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and from three thirty four on, it is a center of Hellenism in Asia Minor. And it is ruled by Lysimachus, who is an heir, one of the heirs to Alexander the Great. In the late 2nd century, it is conquered by Rome, and Augustus made Ephesus the Roman capital of Asia Minor. So it is a significant city. It is the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time of the New Testament. So there are going to be people... Constantly coming there as well as um, as leaving. It had quite a ethnic uh, mix and a religious mix. There were in terms of different ethnicities. There were the Lydians, the Ionians, the Greeks. There's a native population of Anatolians, and also a large Jewish cons- constituency. There's an estimate that as much as ten. Percent of the population was Jewish, and under Augustus Caesar, the Jews had a somewhat privileged status there. Although they always felt like it was somewhat tenuous, and they they were always afraid that it would be taken away from them. But Augustus had issued a decree that said, uh, "Quote: It seemed good to me and my counselors, according to the sentence and oath of the people of Rome, that the Jews have liberty." to make use of their own customs, according to the law of their forefathers, as they made use of them under Hyrcanus, the high priest of Almighty God, and that their sacred money be not touched, but be sent to Jerusalem, and that it be committed to the care of the receivers at Jerusalem, and that they be not obliged to go before any judge on the Sabbath day, nor on the day of the preparation to it after the ninth hour. Now that's a pretty significant uh, st- uh, statement for protection of the Jews. However, there's as we'll see in this episode in, uh, in the rebellion uh, or the riot period at the end of the chapter, there is a, just this incipient anti-Semitism uh, that is still there among the, uh, the population. But one of the most significant things about the, about uh, Ephesus was it is the center of one of the most degraded uh, worship uh, centers in the ancient world, the temple to Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians, sometimes called Diana. If you've got a New King James or King James, it translated it with Diana, but it should not be confused with the Artemis or the Diana of the of, of Greek or Roman mythology, this is a different, she a similar origin, but as this deity, uh, she she takes her role there that that, that she takes on a different uh, significance and a different per- persona. The temple to Artemis was the seventh wonder of the ancient world. It was massive. It was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was two hundred and twenty. Feet by four hundred and twenty-five feet. There were over a hundred and twenty monumental columns, and because each was over six sixty feet in height, it was a greatest a great center of pagan worship, sacrifice, and prostitution in the ancient world. Because uh, Artemis was a goddess of fertility, and what went along with that was just every kind of sexual uh, perversion that you can imagine. And this was uh, a thriving business, as we'll learn, that there were those who were silversmiths and coppersmiths in, in Ephesus who would make these metal figurines of the temple and of Artemis, and that they would be uh, be sold, and it was a lucrative business. And the conversion of many to Christianity uh, eventually, uh, threatened that business. Let me show you a couple of other uh, pictures here. Uh, this is a picture looking down towards the harbor. This is a picture of the theater that shows its size. And I have stood there, and you can—it's it, the acoustics are perfect. And send somebody in the group up to the upper levels and stand in the sweet spot down on the stage, and you can just talk in a normal voice, and they can hear you. It's just incredible how they uh, constructed uh, the theaters. Here's a view from the top of the theater looking west uh, out toward what this road would have ended at the harbor, so you can see how how far the water has, has receded. This is another aerial, the significance of this. The uh, area we're looking at is off to the left, but this is where the Temple of Artemis was located, excuse me, right here. Nothing left, amazing. Christianity completely supplanted it for a while, as it became a major center for Christianity. One of the major bishoprics in the ancient, uh, in the early church. This is a close-up of the site where the Temple of Artemis was located. And this is a typical figurine seen in the um, museum there. She was called the mini breasted goddess. Uh, that is a picture of, of, of fertility, and this was uh, part of the whole basis for their uh, religious practice. So here we have a map. This shows Ephesus here on the western coast of what is today modern Turkey and what is... What was the Roman province of Asia. When Paul left on his second missionary journey, his his idea was to go there, but as he revisited the churches here in uh, central southern Turkey, uh, we're told in Acts God the Holy Spirit prevented him from going there. It wasn't the right time yet, and so he went north and ended up at Troas where he sees a vision of uh, a Macedonian calling from him to go over, so that's the route that he took, and then he came back to Ephesus. That's Acts chapter 8, 18. On his third journey, he had, ending the second journey, he went down to Caesarea, to Jerusalem, and then back to Antioch, and then he left and he came this way overland. Uh, revisiting Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia, and then ending up in Ephesus. And so we read in Acts chapter 19.1, it happened while Apollo was at Corinth. Now, there's something interesting here. I'm not going to go through every detail, talk about every detail, but I want to point out some of the high points here that are brought out by by Luke and to look at them from sort of the vantage point of of an aerial view here, and what is going on, and why are we told about these particular episodes. So what we learn is that after Paul left to go back to Jerusalem, what we read is in verse 24 that there was a certain Jew named Apollos, which is a Greek name named for one of the Greek gods. He was born in Alexandria, where apparently there was a certain amount of uh, uh, assimilation going on among the Jews, and it was one of the great centers. They had a huge number of Jews in Alexandria. It was also a great center of education, and so he seems to have had a background where he studied rhetoric, and he was a uh, great orator because we're told that he was an eloquent man And mighty in the scriptures. He's an Old Testament saint, Jewish. He comes to Ephesus, and uh, there he begins to teach the Old Testament scriptures and the promise of a coming Messiah. And I believe that he also knew that Jesus had come, but that's as far as it went for him. He didn't know the rest of the story, he just knew the beginning of the story. And uh, he, because he knew in the next verse about the baptism of John. And so we, we're also introduced to uh, a couple that is well-known. They were close friends of the Apostle Paul, Aquila and Priscilla. And we learn from verse 25 that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So they took him aside in verse twenty-six, and they um, they corrected him. They explained to him the way of God more accurately, and he believed the gospel. And uh, it, then he left, and he goes to Corinth. But during his brief time there, there are those who are uh, those who are saved. So he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, verse 28, showing from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So Apollos has been there, and he's planted some seeds. And now, and Paul has been there. So that's the foundation. But what's interesting is Apollo, uh, uh, Apollos is, is, knows the baptism of John the Baptist nothing significant happens when he is saved the first episode that occurs in chapter 19 is that there are paul runs into these 12 disciples of john the baptist and they don't know that jesus has come when he gives them the gospel that jesus was crucified died and buried and rose from the dead then they believe but there seems to be something wrong as Paul talks to them. And um, as be, before they, he gave them the gospel, there seemed to be something wrong, and he realized that they didn't have the whole story. They knew only the baptism with John. After they are saved, the, they, the Holy Spirit comes, and they, they speak in tongues and, they're, and prophesy. We'll talk about all of that. But why doesn't that happen with Apollos? Anybody have any idea? That's an important question to ask, and we'll see the answer in a minute. Okay, so Paul asked these 12 disciples, we learn that when we get down to about verse 10, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, this is important, and I think this is part of why nothing happens with Apollos, is number one, there's no apostle with him. Every time you have uh, the church introduced to a new group in Acts, you have it on the day of Pentecost, you have it in Samaria with the Samaritan believers, Peter and John go there, you have it with Peter going uh, going to Cornelius at Caesarea, there's always an apostle present. That is to show that the church is one entity all under the authority of the, um, of the apostles. And this is what Paul talks about or mentions in Ephesians 2.20, that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. That's why nothing happens with, with Apollos. But with these guys, it's important because Paul is there, he's an apostle, He's going to introduce them to the Holy Spirit. But what's significant is that in each of these instances, there's this new thing that happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in what I will call the baptism by the Holy Spirit. That's the scriptural term. That's exactly what we have that's ex- that is explained here in verse 3. Paul says, "...into what then were you baptized?" And he uses the word, the Greek preposition, eighth and that's significant because the end result of different baptisms, if we're baptized into Christ, the spirit baptism, it's expressed by the same preposition... If we're baptized by John's baptism, you're baptized into repentance. That's the final state. It's identified by this same preposition. And so uh, that's what's significant here is understanding what what plays out. The language is very very important. They were baptized into John's baptism. So Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Remember, we just got through studying in Matthew. The message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a baptism identifying them with repentance for the coming kingdom. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Now, that goes back to Matthew 3.11, when... when John said that I baptize you now with water or by means of water, using the preposition in, but the one who comes after me, whose, shoe, whose sandal laces I'm not worthy of tying, he will baptize you by means of the Spirit. So now that's been fulfilled. Paul is reminding them, remember what John said, there was one coming after him who would baptize with the Spirit? Well, he came. That's Christ Jesus. And so when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that illustrate? How many people are thinking, that's that's the Great Commission. That's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We just got through doing a series on discipleship that you are to, while you are going, make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and by teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Okay, So that's exactly what is happening here. They're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This was water baptism, and water baptism is important because it is a physical uh, ritual that teaches an abstract spiritual reality. And that abstract spiritual reality is that at the instant of faith in Christ, we are identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. Now, that's really important, and it's important for Ephesians because that is what places us in Christ, as we'll see. So, Matthew 3.11, uh, he will baptize you by means of. That's literally how it could be translated, not With. Uh, The English preposition with has a range of of meanings. I could ask you, well, who did you come to church with this morning? And that would be the idea of uh, of association. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about uh, uh, instrumentality or how you do something, the means. So you're baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. Now what happens is they're going to Speak in tongues and prophesy. Now, I've dealt with the tongues issue many times, and we've talked a lot at different times about what prophecy entailed. There are two meanings to prophecy. Prophecy had one meaning, which is to, which really was the idea of bringing a uh, a, a lawsuit or conviction, to the people for disobeying the covenant. That's the role of the prophet. Most people think, well, the role of the prophet is to tell the future. Well, that's not correct. It may entail the future, but the prophet was like God's district attorney, God's attorney general. He is bringing a lawsuit against the people for violating the covenant. Now, in that, he will warn them that if you continue this way, this is what's going to happen. And that's where prophecy, the foretelling, future telling, would come into play. But the primary role of the prophet was to represent God to man as his uh, attorney general, prosecuting them for violation of the terms of the covenant. A second meaning for prophecy is found in Uh, second chronicles and that relates to the singing of praise to god that talks about the choir directors and music directors in the temple prophesied with the harp and various other instruments you have uh, two women who are identified as prophetesses in the old testament one is miriam who is moses's sister And right after she's identified as the prophetess, what does she do? She writes a psalm, a hymn, praising God for deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It is singing. Then you skip forward a couple of books to the book of the Judges, and you see that God raises up a judge named uh, Barak, and he is to go uh, lead the Israelites against the Canaanite uh, king, uh, from uh, Hatzor, uh, Jabin, and he is going to uh, give them victory, but he's kind of a wimpy male. He's a girly man, and he really doesn't want to go to battle, so he says, I won't go unless Deborah goes with me, and so Deborah is a judge, and she is also called a prophetess, and when the battle's over, what does Deborah do? she writes a hymn of praise for victory in the battle judges chapter 5 so that is a second way in which the word prophet is used and that's the only way that we can make sense of some passages in the scripture like this one it says and they prophesied you also think back we talked about this in in uh, first samuel when saul was anointed that he was found among the prophets and prophesying among the prophets well what the the best way to understand that is that they were singing uh, praises to God, and so that makes sense otherwise you 're there. What are they doing if it 's convicting or bringing a lawsuit against Israel? How would that doesn 't make sense in the context uh, the idea of singing does so so what happens here is the Holy Spirit descends and they speak in tongues, which means they speak in human languages that they have not previously learned. It was a temporary spiritual gift along with miracles and uh, the word of knowledge and wisdom uh, during a time when there is no complete canon of Scripture. And so these are temporary sign gifts that are no longer in effect. And they were, as Paul describes in in, 1 Chronicles 14, they were a sign of judgment to the Jews. It isn't what they said that was a message of judgment on the Jews. It's that they were hearing Scripture, they were hearing the Word of God in a Gentile language. That was prophesied in Deuteronomy and also in Isaiah. And the thrust of it is that because God had chosen Israel to be the custodians of God's Word, that the sign of judgment would be that they would hear Gentile languages On the temple proclaiming the truth of God, and this would be a sign that God was going to bring judgment on Israel. So that's what's involved. Now, in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, we have Peter involved. It is what happens in Acts 2 is the message focuses on repentance. Again, it's related to the kingdom of God, changing your mind, turning to God. Uh, The emphasis at Acts 8 with the Samaritans is belief, and in Acts 10 it's belief, and in Acts 19 they believed. They believed the gospel. There's no water baptism mentioned in Acts 2 at all until later, but not at the event itself. Then you have uh, water baptism in Acts 8. Then you have uh, immediate water baptism in Acts 10, and then you have this second baptism, so they would be the first Anabaptists, I guess, uh, they are rebaptized by means of water in Acts 19. The, you have the reception of the Holy Spirit and tongues. You have the reception of the Holy Spirit and no tongues in Acts 8 with the Samaritans. Why? Because they're half Jewish. So that you, you don't have it. Uh, they're, they're, they're categorically different from either the Jews or the Gentiles. They're uh, in between. Acts 10, you have... Uh, Spirit baptism manifestation with with tongues, with Cornelius, and then you have uh, spirit baptism in tongues here in Acts chapter 19. And this all is important in understanding what Paul is getting at in Ephesians, because he's going to be talking about our position in Christ. So what we have in this chart is that at the cross, when you believe in Jesus as your Savior, two Two different things happen, or two things happen in different spheres. First, in terms of eternal realities, we are placed in Christ by God the Holy Spirit. Jesus uses God the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. That is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is used, that's the instrumental aspect there, is used by Christ, just as John used water to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. So this is where we have our positional reality. Sometimes you'll hear this referred to as positional truth. This is who we are and what we have in Christ We are immediately indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by God the Holy Spirit. We are initially, we are walking by the Spirit until we sin. We are justified. We are redeemed. We are made priests. We are in the body of Christ. All of these things and much, much more are the assets that God gives us the blessings that are ours in Christ. That is what we'll be studying in the first three chapters of of Ephesians. The second half of Ephesians talks about how we live on the basis of what we have, and that is our walk. And so we are to walk by means of the Spirit, And part of walking by the Spirit entails the filling by means of the Spirit, where he fills us with his word. There are a lot of aspects to walking by the Spirit. The main idea is not being filled by the Spirit. Change your vocabulary. The main idea is walking by the Spirit. When we walk by the Spirit, the Spirit fills us with his word. It's not the other way around. So, we've covered that many times. So, when we fail, when we disobey God, we are out of fellowship is a term that we use. It's not really the best term to use because it sounds like it's a passive idea. When we disobey God, we're no longer walking. We're no longer engaged in spiritual growth. It's a very active concept. Fellowship is something that you enjoy. I can be in right relationship with a friend of mine that I haven't talked to her four or five years. That's a pretty static relationship and nothing's happening. Okay? That's not what it means to walk by means of the Spirit. I can be some distance. I have a good friend that I've known. We met in church when we were 12 years old. We were roommates in college, and we talk about every week or two still. And and that is a dynamic, ongoing relationship. He lives several states away. So when we sin, we are no longer walking in the light. That's why I used white circles with a dark background. We're no longer walking according to the sin nature. We are walking. It's an active concept. We're walking according to the sin nature, and we are walking in darkness under the control of the sin nature. But when we confess sin, then we are restored to walking by the Spirit and a place where we can grow spiritually. So what happens is that Paul... Then arrives in, um, in Ephesus and we're told that he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now the words that are used here are say, the dialegeomai dia is the same word that you, was used earlier when he came the first time in Acts, in Acts 18. He is, it means to dispute, it means to discuss, it means to uh, reason your way through things, and it is something that is intellectual and not emotional. Although if you're not getting your way and you disagree, you can get pretty emotional. But the activity itself is one of rational discourse, talking through things. So they were reason and persuading, persuading. I-, I know a lot of Christians who, when it comes to giving the gospel, they just kind of throw it out there and walk away because they're too timid. They don't know how to reason and to persuade. See, that's part of what Paul did. We are to persuade people of the truth. But to do that, you have to understand the arguments for the gospel. Understand answers to questions. You need to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in you. You have to have knowledge. In my opinion, not true of this congregation, but in my opinion, about 90% of evangelical Christians are totally ignorant of the defense of the faith and how to present the gospel and how to answer any question that somebody might have. They may be very interested, but they say, well, how do you really know he rose from the dead? they're not, it's not a hostile attack, it's just, you know, I don't want to put my brain in neutral and just believe something because you said so, you know, the, the, that that's rational, is we don't believe things that people say just because it's an emotional thing and we should believe them, or because, oh, they told a really sad, difficult story, so it must be true, or anything like that. We believe because there's evidence like these this hearing this last week there's no evidence given why should we believe the accusations of anyone apart from two or three witnesses this is what scripture teaches do not receive or accept don't even take it into account that's the foundation for american law don't even take into account an accusation unless there's corroborating evidence, and yet when we reject that, we are upending our entire system of jurisprudence, not just ours, but the entire system of jurisprudence that has shaped the Western world due to the impact of uh, Judeo-Christianity from Deuteronomy all the way into, uh, into the New Testament. So this is what Paul's doing. He is giving a rational defense of the gospel. He's going back to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. He's going back to uh, Genesis 49, showing that the scepter will not depart from uh, Judah. That this—it's interesting. There is a targum, Jewish commentary, targum on Genesis. Uh, and and it's, it, it's helpful for understanding Jewish theology, but it's not necessarily helpful for textual criticism, but uh, it's helpful for, for understanding Jewish thought because it's more of a paraphrase, and whoever uh, wrote that Targum wanted people to be clear, said this is referring to the coming of the Messiah. <laughs> so apart from those who want to say there's no Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, but that's what Paul would do. Now, he's going to get a typical response. Some are going to believe and some will not. Verse 9 says, When some were hardened and did not believe, that is, they were not convinced, they rejected being convinced. See, see, being convinced that something is true demands a volitional decision to be willing to be convinced. Now, I want you to pay attention. I didn't see this, but I was given an excellent description of this. That this last week, when we had these, this, this mockery of justice on Thursday, that afterward there was a, a control group done. There's a psychologist and they do all these kinds of, of, uh, of studies on how people respond to different things. And you had about half of them were, or a third of them were Democrats, a third were Republicans, and a third were independent. And so they were to press their little buttons as to how convinced they were from listening to the, uh, stories from, from, uh, Judge Kavanaugh and also from, uh, Dr. Ford. And the result was giving three different types of evidence, Ford, I mean, uh, Kavanaugh twice and Ford once. All of the Republicans disbelieved everything Dr. Ford said. All of the Democrats disbelieved everything that Kavanaugh said, and the independents were right in the middle, waffling. See, none of them were willing to be convinced by any evidence. Their mind was made up, first, don't confuse me with the facts. And we often run into that when we are trying to explain the gospel to people. Their minds are already hardened against the truth. Uh, They're convinced in their own truthfulness, and it doesn't matter how much evidence we present, they won't believe. That is their decision. And then as a result of that, there's a reaction. They spoke evil of the way before the multitude, and so that he, Paul, departed from them and withdrew the disciples and reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, what I see here, what I want to emphasize here, let's finish this section up here, uh, 1910. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So I've covered two episodes, really. We'll get the other two next week. The two episodes here have to do with the episode related to salvation of what I would call Old Testament saints, Apollos and these 12 disciples of John the Baptist. And what happens is they learn the gospel. they believe and in the, we're not told about baptism for Apollos, but um, we're told of the twelve that they were rebaptized. That takes us back to the Great Commission, okay? The second thing that happens is Paul is teaching them. For two years, he teaches in the school of Tyrannus. That's fulfilling, even though the term disciple is not used, that is fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave the disciples in Matthew uh, 28, 19, and 20. This is the foundation for this body of believers that Paul is writing to some 10 years later in the epistle to the Ephesians. And he has to remind them, because we all need to be reminded many times, of what we have in Christ. He made that very, very clear on that second time in Ephesus when he's there for three years. He taught them well that's the focal point of training a believer and equipping a believer, as Paul will say in Ephesians four eleven and 12, is that the, the role of the uh, apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor-teacher is to teach, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. But that falls flat. Remember, that's in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 1 through 3 is our wealth in Christ. Ephesians four through six is our walk in Christ. We have to to be equipped, we have to understand what the wealth is, and that's what we will focus on when we go through the first three chapters of of Ephesus. So the thing to remember today is the importance of what happens with those two groups. They are they understand this new baptism by the Spirit placing us in Christ. And then that is followed up by teaching and training, and it involves ministry. They are sending out dozens to all of Asia so that all of Asia hears. Now, this isn't Eastern Asia. This is the Roman province of Asia. All of Asia hears about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there is a uh, tremendous growth, so that in verse ten we read, So the Word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, and established the founda- began to establish the foundation for Western civilization, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to begin this study in Ephesians to be reminded of who we are and what we have in Christ this remarkable privilege of each one of us as church-age believers, that you have given us a position higher than any other believer in history. Old Testament saints did not have this privilege and position. It will not be uh, there for the tribulation saint and so throughout this the history, we see this unique role for the church-age believer. Father, we, as church-age believers, need to understand this. We need to understand our privileges and our responsibilities. Father, we also pray for those who are listening who may not under, truly understand the gospel, may not be believers in Christ yet, that Christ died for your sins that it is a free gift, it's not something you earn or deserve, it's not something where there's any prerequisite or condition or requirement, it is simply to believe that Jesus died for you, he died on the cross, paid the penalty for your sins, and by accepting that as a free gift, you have eternal life along with uh, just a number of other blessings, including eternally secure salvation as your seal by God the Holy Spirit. Father, for the rest of us, we have to understand what those riches mean, what that wealth has provided, and live on the basis of that. And that is our challenge. In Christ's name, amen.